All right, let's get into Revelation. We are going verse by verse through this document that is known as Revelation. In the first chapter, the first line of it, we are told that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is my goal as we travel through this entire document, is that our attention would be on Jesus and Jesus alone. You sit in chapter 1. It's, it is a vision of Jesus that Jesus gave himself to John, the disciple that he loved, this man that he called not only as a disciple, but he called and sent forth as an apostle. This is the apostle John who knew Jesus intimately. He was part of that inner circle. He was there as Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross and became sin for every single human soul that has ever been. John saw that. John saw his death. John saw his empty tomb. John saw him resurrected. John saw Jesus ascend to heaven to go back to where he always was with the Father. John was there and filled with the Holy Spirit there on the day of Pentecost. John knew what it was like to share the gospel to his peers and sit in that rejection and that pain. John was there at the birth of the church. He was a man who was defined by Jesus as a son of thunder, wanted to call down fire from heaven to strike people dead in their rejection against Jesus. And he's a man that we watch mature over time. Just an, an, an incredible guy as we get to sit with John, which we've already gone through, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now here in Revelation. He sees his Savior, Jesus, glorified, resurrected. The description that's given is all these different attributes about who Jesus is, who he was, and who he will be for all eternity. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus, out of his mouth, they're pouring forth words to his people, to Jesus' people. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower? What does it mean to be a part of his body, his church? And again, in these descriptions, in these letters, we have all the different personalities, I think, represented in the body of Christ, whether it's different communities, different times in history, dealing with different life circumstances there Jesus is encouraging he's rebuking as necessary and then again he's sustaining us with all of these incredible promises if you hear me which to hear him is to believe in him to have faith in him to trust him to pursue getting to know him every single day here's your victory here's your victory in me all these incredible promises and then at, when we hit chapter 4 the vision shifts to after these things, after these words to the church is sequentially in this vision to John, but we also believe sequentially in regards to present tense and future tense. After these things, here's, here's a vision of the future, and John is taken to the throne room of the Almighty God. Can you imagine? What, it, what is the, the being who created the heavens and the earth? What does his eternal habitation look like? We're given this description of a throne and, and his creatures around his throne in worship. And the major emphasis of this passage in chapters 4 and 5 is declaring the value, 
the worthiness, the worthness of Jesus himself as this title, as the Lamb, the one who was sacrificed, the one who has redeemed us. And again, we watch worship, words pouring out of the hearts and the mouths of his creatures towards God. It's an awesome scene. But once you hit chapter 6, the judgment of God being poured out on those who reject him is revealed. His, his wrath that is being built up towards sin and towards sinners, this is, this is the unveiling that goes on from chapter 6 through 19. In chapter 19, you have the return of Jesus, which is also a wrathful scene. In chapters 20, you have that millennial kingdom where Satan is going to be locked away for a thousand years, but at the end of that thousand years, he is going to be let loose. And again, you see the, the misery and the judgment again. And then before, that's before chapters 21 and 22 in Revelation where we're given the vision of what is our eternal abode with God going to look like? What is it? What is the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem? God dwelling in the midst of his creation. It's incredible. But right now we're sitting in misery. We're sitting in chapters 6 through 19 and we're watching Jesus as judge. He's the one that is defined worthy to open the seals of the scroll. What's the scroll represent? Not totally sure. Could be a marriage contract as we sit eventually in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It could be a title deed, so to say, of here's the requirements for, you know, for sin to be paid for, for God's creation to be restored and redeemed, and, and all the different language that would be a part of that. The only one who is determined worthy to open this document is Jesus. And as he opens it, judgments start to pour out. So we've already sat in that in chapters 6 and 7, but as we plug into chapter 8 this morning, it's a short chapter. We see the seventh seal opened, so this document, the scroll, is now fully opened, and we have the beginnings of the trumpet judgments. So let's read chapter 8. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, 
burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died, many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel, some of your translations will say eagle, flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. Well, what do you got to say about that? And that's exactly what I asked God. What do you want me to say about that? Back to verse 1. In chapter 6, again, we have the opening of the six seals and the divisions that transpire there. In chapter 7, there's this interlude that we covered last week, the sealing of this, these specific 144,000 individuals of all the tribes of Israel. We have this declaration, another vision in heaven there, that salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne. So there's this break in, in thoughts and uh, and in sequence, too, is, is we just, between the sixth and the seventh seal, and now as the seventh seal is opened, we're told that when Jesus, as the Lamb, opens this document, that heaven is silent. And again, this, this is a very dramatic scene. I've, I've mentioned before, and I want to keep this before all of our minds, of how overstimulating heaven must be. And all of the praise and all of the noise all of the different voices, all the different activities. Again, the abode, the eternal abode of God, it's, it's one of those things that my imagination, I have the level of like stick figures. Some of yours is going to be a lot more vibrant than mine. I can only deal with a few little nuances at the same time, but heaven to me must be an overstimulating place in regards to all of the activities that are going on. And that's why this is so dramatic, because it feels like, it feels like, and I can't declare this dogmatically, but it feels like that this would be the first time that heaven was ever silent. And again, we could sit here, if I could, I could just sit here for a minute as a test and just remain absolutely silent for a minute, and all of us would start to shift and get a little uncomfortable because silence is strange. Because we're in an environment right now where it's not supposed to be silent. You know, if this is more prayerful. Even, even as we gather together to pray, if there is more than like 30 seconds, a minute of silence, what does your brain start doing? Why is everybody quiet? Am I supposed to say something? They want me to pray now? You know, right? Silence is weird to us. And again, that's the drama of this scene. And the only, the only flavor that we have, what does it mean that all of, when, when Jesus cracks open this final seal, that there is a hush? What does that mean? In Habakkuk 3, Zechariah 1 and 2, these are the only little, little grasp that we have of the idea that God is preparing himself to judge. 
And there is, especially in Zechariah 1 and 2, there is a direct instruction to mankind, be silent before the Lord. And in that, in that prophecy, the reason for silence is because the judge is rising up to judge. And it seems, again, it just seems like this is in astonishment. This is a moment of to be sober, to consider. This is a moment of preparation. And then as we look at what, is, what occurs in the subsequent verses, as John is watching, he, again, did, did Jesus give him a full 30 minutes of silence? That he's sitting in this vision, in that silence? Don't know. But it shifts to now he sees these seven angels. And here's their task. These trumpets are given to them. You know, do they line up? Who gives them the trumpets? Does God the Father hand these trumpets off of his throne? Does the Lamb hand these trumpets to the seven angels? Does another angel hand these out? I don't know, but it says that, again, that they're handed these trumpets. And these are angels who stand before God, again, enabled by God to stand in his presence. We got to sit in the imagery of a trumpet, too. So when you look at the Old Testament, the first time that a trumpet is mentioned is that scene in the book of Exodus when God himself descends in a cloud and is there on Mount Sinai, and there is a loud blast of a trumpet that is crescendoing. It keeps getting louder and louder and louder. And the purpose of that trumpet is to gather the people to God. We see it in New Testament. We have this imagery in regards to the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where, where that event is triggered by the sound of a trumpet. There is an alarm that sounds. There is a, a sound that sounds loud. And that, that, the sound of that trumpet is to gather his people to himself for all eternity. That's a description that we have of the rapture. When we sit in these trumpets, trumpets is also, it's a, it's a sound to, to gather the people together, but it's also a sound for war. Sit in the battle of Jericho as, as the nation of Israel is traveling around Jericho in silence for seven days. Well, what, what happened on the seventh day? Go around seven times in silence. What breaks the silence? This trumpet blast. What happened at the sound of that trumpet blast? The walls of Jericho fell, fell down, and where every man was standing, they went straight in, and they went to war. What do you think about God and war? It's hard. It's really hard. What do you think about God using Gentile nations, pagan nations, wicked nations, the Assyrians who invented crucifixion as a form of torture. God used those evil men to go, and we say discipline, but to violently execute, torture, rape, pillage, enslave his kids. What do you think about God? We just talked about the Battle of Jericho. What do, you, what do you think about God sending his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, 
into the land of Canaan with the orders from the creator of the heavens and the earth. Kill every man, every woman, every child, every animal. Are you uncomfortable? You should be very uncomfortable. What's your perspective? Limited or full? Limited. I, I, I have to trust in the passages where God declares himself to me. I am good. I am gracious. I am merciful. I am kind. I am compassionate. I am holy. I am priest. I am king. I am judge. I am savior. I am redeemer. I am God. That shifts my perspective. Revelation to me, it's a miserable book because I'm watching God as judge and I don't have this perspective. When you sit in the Old Testament, we're told that the, the land of Canaan, the nations that inhabited that land, God gave them centuries to turn from their wickedness. And their wickedness was wicked. So even in the execution of men, women, children, and animals, God ultimately was judging, yes, because the wages of sin is death, but he was also preserving life. Because that group of people, those wicked individuals that rejected the creator as God and followed the, the creation of their hands, their idolatry, if that idolatry were allowed to remain in the midst of his people, God knew the hearts of people. He knows our hearts. He knows just how difficult it is for us to live in this land and the difficulty to remain unspotted from our culture. It's a hard thing. God knows and he hears our prayers for our kids. He hears our prayers for ourselves and for our nation, for the lost, that they would know who Jesus is, that they would turn to him. When you sit in this idea that Jesus is judge and what his justice looks like, it's a very uncomfortable thing from our perspective. But when we attempt to sit in his perspective, it reveals just how dark, unholy, wicked, sinful, whatever word, whatever adjective you want to use, what rebellion against God really is. But it, let's sit in the idea a little bit of rejection. So hold on, hold on to that, and we'll get into the description here. Because as, as these angels are prepared to sound the trumpet, and these trumpets are announcing judgments specifically, before they begin to sound, John is given the vision of another angel. And this other angel is standing in the position of a priest. So when you sit in the Old Testament descriptions of how God told the nation of Israel to worship him, 
He gave them a very specific pattern when it came to the tabernacle, which eventually leads into the temple. Um, He gave them very specific instructions in regards to, you know, the garments that the high priest was to wear. Part of that function of a priest is incense. So if you remember the story of, of Christmas, it's Zachariah's turn to go into the temple and do what? It's his turn to go into the temple. There's, a, there's an altar, just this, this square wood uh, object that's been overlaid with gold. And on that altar, incense was to be burned. And that incense, when, you, when something burns, it smokes, right? It, it elevates, it ascends. So the imagery is linked to to prayer and to worship, that as we communicate to God, that aroma of the words that we speak is something that ascends to the nostrils of God. Again, this this is all imagery that's being used. But here, John's given this vision of here's an angel performing a priestly function. This angel is approaching the creator of the heavens and the earth, and to this angel is given a censer, an incense burner. Now, if any of you have any kind of more of an orthodox background, a Catholic background, just more of a liturgical background, you may see the, you know, uh, this, you know, this incense burner on a chain where they kind of swing just a lot more pageantry associated with... Uh, what a church service would look like. Again, there's no, there's no condemnation against that at all because the imagery that is being presented is that our prayers are intermingled with this sweet-smelling aroma. And our prayers are something that God stores. Our prayers are something that God hears. Those prayers that he stores, that he is saying, wait, Remember, the, earlier on in chapter 6, we have the elders have these golden bowls, and the, it's said that they are filled with incense, and it's defined as the prayers of the saints. And now it seems like those bowls, those prayers that were stored up, here an angel is now offering these prayers to God because God is going to act in judgment. Remember those that were already believers that were already killed in the fifth seal as it was opened. They're standing before the throne of God saying, how long before you avenge our blood? So all of these ideas are carrying forward to this circumstance. I wanted to bring up the idea of rejection. Just because, again, as I, as I sit in this passage, Lord, what am I, I going to talk about? I don't want to talk about your judgment for, how long do I talk for? Like an hour, two hours, something like that? Come on, wake up. Um, God speaks through life's circumstances. And you look at this scene as this angel is acting as a priest. You go into the Old Testament, and again, you look at the specific instructions of, well, when was this incense offered to God? One of them's in Leviticus 16. It's part of the the Day of Atonement, the ritual that God commanded. And you look at that whole idea of what atonement means through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As prayers are being offered of gratitude, of thanks, of God to act, that's part of it. But one of the major scenes is in Numbers 16, And this is why I want to sit in this idea of rejection. So in number 16, you have Korah and all of those who are on Korah's team coming against Moses and Aaron. 
So you have the whole nation of Israel that was delivered out of their slavery in Egypt. And this is for us as we sit in the imagery. We've been delivered out of the slavery of sin. We've been delivered out of this world. The whole nation of Israel, they experienced all of the plagues that God poured out on the nation of Egypt before he exited his children out of Egypt, right? And a lot of the plague imagery of Exodus is the the imagery that we see here as the trumpets are being sounded. As they go through those circumstances, and they've been in the wilderness for a while, the sons of Korah, Korah himself, and, and all those that are on Korah's team, they're kind of sick of Moses. They don't like him as a leader. They don't like his leadership style. They don't like his communication style. They don't like the circumstances of their life. And because you don't like the circumstances of your life, you need somebody to wag your finger out. It's their fault. Sit in Nazi Germany. The reason for Germany's poverty and all of their issues was the Jews, right? So here's this enemy and go and kill them all. So this is, this is a common theme in, in humanity. When something is wrong with your life, you need somebody to blame that's not yourself, whether you're blaming God or you're blaming somebody else. And here, Korah, Korah doesn't like his circumstances, so Moses becomes that target. And in that, you watch Moses and Aaron just fall down in intercession, worship towards God and trusted God in, in fear. Like these people, are, you're not complaining against me, you're complaining against God. You watch this whole scene. And as it unfolds, Moses said, well, let God once again bring clarity to the whole community that he is the one that has brought us to this point, and he is the one who is in authority. And Moses is just acting underneath that as an under-shepherd. So you, Corey, you come with all of those who are on your team, and you worship before God, and you offer incense. And Moses and Aaron, they'll come and they'll offer incense, and let God be the judge. Moses very specifically says, you know what? This is how God is going to reveal his truth. If, if God doesn't have any issues with Korah, then let Korah and all these guys, let them just die a natural death. But if God has an issue with them, let, let the earth open up its mouth. Let the earth open before these guys and swallow them in a hole. What happens? Flat-out miracle. The creator of the heavens and the earth intervenes, and he cracks open the earth. And these men that are in rebellion, not against Moses, they're in rebellion against God. God judged uniquely and specifically so that the people would know what? That Moses is the leader? So that they know God, his holiness. He is the one who tells us what to do with our lives. Not a man, not a woman. He's in control. What do the people do after that event? They complain. (laughs) Moses, you killed Korah. Again, there's there's a whole, there's a plague that occurs, another judgment of God against the nation. Again, not their rebellion towards Moses and Aaron, the rebellion against God. And in that, they take those censers, they melt them down. These are censers of bronze. They melt them down, and they hammer them into a plate. That that plate covered the altar of sacrifice from there forward as a memorial, as a reminder 
God is the one that has orchestrated all this, not Moses and Aaron creating their own religion, but the creator of the heavens and the earth who has revealed himself to us. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. You look at these events that unfold. He is unveiling himself to us today. He is unveiling his justice. He is unveiling his judgment. He is unveiling all of his attributes so that we can see him and know him and love him and follow him. Or your only other option is to reject him because you're either for him or you're against him. And here the judgment is being poured out against those who are against him. Now, this idea of rejection, I want to sit in it a little further because God brought a couple of circumstances into my life just to help walk me through this idea. I had a text from one brother this week that um, was in, in humility, just the, hey, you know, I noticed the last couple of times I've been around you that, uh, like, you're, you, you're irritated with me. So if I've done something you know, I'm sorry, I want to ask for forgiveness. I just, I'm, I'm your brother, I love you, I want the Lord to bless you, I want our relationship to be right. And somebody came to me in, in humility. And how did I receive that? Yeah, you made me really mad, you jerk. No. It's like, I don't even, I don't even know what you're talking about. Forgive me. You know, in my mind, in my lack of self-awareness, like, I'm very kind I'm really gentle, I'm compassionate, I'm easygoing, I'm filled with joy. <laughs> Julie was in here, she'd be the one that cackle. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be, but like, I'm, a, I'm pretty aggressive. I'm pretty short. I'm pretty task-oriented, which makes me not attentive to people's emotions and people's needs. So in my shortness with this brother, it's like, I'm, I have no problem with you. Like, my mind is somewhere else, and I was short with you because I wasn't attentive to you. I was attentive to my task. You forgive me. I'm sorry. And I had another brother this week come to me, and it was absolutely zero context in regards to how I offended. I, I have no idea. So I'm still praying through this and still processing through this, and Lord, you show me what way forward. Where he told me, you know, go read, you know, well, what's going on? You go read Ezekiel 34. What's Ezekiel 34? I don't know. Anybody know Ezekiel 34 off the top of your head? So I leave that conversation. I go look at Ezekiel 34. Do you know what it is? It's God's judgment against false pastors, false shepherds. Yeah. I got I to gotta sit in that. Lord, well, what, did, what does your word tell me? What does your word tell me functionally that I'm supposed to do as a pastor? How did I miss, where did I miss in the relationship with this individual where they, didn't, they did not have the courage to address whatever is wrong and they hid behind a passage because God hasn't revealed to me that I'm teaching idolatry and that I'm creating a kingdom for myself. As far as I know, I preach the true Jesus every single week in humility. Because I don't care if you know me, I want you to know him. I'm sure I miss 
caring for you the way that you need to be cared for all the time. But am I false, Lord? If I'm false, remove, remove me. If I'm preaching another Jesus, get me out of here, Lord, and provide the man that will communicate you day in and day out. Because I, ha I have open hands. I am here at the act of God, and I have very clear testimony to that. I'm not here for my own name. I'm not here to build some kind of worldly thing. All I want to do is have fellowship with you in the name of Jesus, around his word, in the spirit, in love, in food, in service, in evangelism, whatever that looks like. It's all about Jesus. And if I get off, come have a conversation. But rejection stinks, you know? So what do you do with that rejection? Think of Jesus. Seriously, think of Jesus on the cross. Forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. And for this individual, whether he, like, I don't know if I, what I did. But if I legitimately did something, Lord, help me be the one to help make that right and to be reconciled in the name of Jesus, period. But rejection really hurt. You sit in Moses sitting in the rejection of Korah, and again, there, there are multiple circumstances in that account where they were rejecting him. Sit in David's story, everybody's rejection towards David, whether justified or unjustified. We are rejected by our spouses. We are rejected by our children. We are rejected by our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are rejected by employees and employers and strangers. We sit in that, that emotion of rejection. It's miserable. And I'm extending this idea because when Jesus sits as judge and pours out his justice that we are watching in Revelation. It is a reaction to rejecting the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that is a very serious thing. And so is receiving him. And this is why every time we gather together, we're going to go through the word. We want to know him and to understand him. We don't want to be blinded by ourselves. So it's... Uh, um, when Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, lawyers, did they receive his re, uh, him rejecting them and rebuking them? For the most part, no. They looked at Jesus as the Yahoo. When Jesus was there pouring out the Father's heart, attempting to capture their attention. But here in Revelation... We are watching God act against those who reject him. And again, to me, that gives all that weight to the silence of preparation. It gives all this weight to the imagery of this angel acting in this office as priest. It lands all this weight on the, the emphasis that God places upon our, our communication to him whether that communication is in joy or in anger or in tears and worship and in silence, our communication to our God rises up to him. And he hears it and he acts. And sometimes he stores. 
And if you have ever cried out for God to be your avenger, if you've ever cried out to God against those who brutally slaughter other human beings, here's God acting. First trumpet. Hail and fire mingled with blood. Again, direct imagery to the plagues, the judgments of God against the nation of Egypt, because ultimately what we're watching God do is performing another exodus. Here he is demonstrating that he and he alone is the living God, the true God, the God of gods before the final exodus. And whoever responds to him in faith and in obedience, they're exited to his presence. Those who remain in the position of rejection, judgment, and execution. This is uh, these first four sounds of the trumpet. They're all, they're all linked together. And it's all a third, a third of the trees, a third of the sea, a third of the, you know, the, our drinking water, a third of the heavens. One of the ideas, you know, we sit in the, like, the weight of what would it look like for a third of all trees on this planet just to be gone, to wither? What would it be for a third of our fresh water supply to turn into bitterness, wormwood? What would it look like? Again, we sat in the sixth seal where there's this cataclysmic event that darkens the skies. Here in this fourth trumpet, it's that same thing. There's a, there's a, there's a darkening that occurs. A third. So we sit in the weight and the gravity of that, right? And what I want you to attend to is I want you to look and to consider and to remember not what God is smiting, but what he is sparing. Because what could God do in his holiness, in in his judgment right now with humanity? What could God do if he unrestrained himself in judgment and injustice? In a moment, all of this can be undone. So why do we have this extended period of time and this extended scene? Because God is patient. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he is seeking daily those who will be curious like Moses and turn in and say, what's going on over there? And have an encounter with God. And that's all of Revelation. Come and see. Come. Every single soul is invited to his eternal dwelling place, the new heaven and the new earth. It's awesome. So the attention, if you want to do, you know, deeper Bible study, go and study the plagues that God pours out against the nation of Egypt because what he did historically is exactly what he is doing in the future. One of the ideas just in the second trumpet as it's being sounded, it says something like a great mountain burning with fire. In Jeremiah 51, so that's a chapter dealing with the judgment of Babylon, says, uh, God says that he would make 
Babylon a burning mountain? So again, a lot as you sit in attempting to interpret the imagery that is being given, what is, what is God saying? If the burning mountain here represents the nation of Babylon, then what does the sea represent? What do the living creatures represent? What do the ships represent? It seems as though it's a very literal asteroid, something falling from the heavens, not just in random created order, um, as, you know, as asteroids are circling around on their paths, but a very specific divine act of God in judgment. And the purpose of the judgment is to wake up humanity to the nature and character of God. And you deal with wormwood. Worship team, come on up. We'll, we'll end here. Dealing with wormwood, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, 14 says, I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not with us here today. So that would include us. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by, listen, and you saw their abominations. Literally, their, their wicked behaviors, their idols, their false gods, which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. So that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. And that there may not be among you a root-bearing bitterness or wormwood there's our word and so it may not happen that he who hears the words of this curse again in regards to God's law and having a relationship with him there are blessings associated with having faith in him and following him and there are curses associated with rebellion and disobedience so when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. Lord, we want to give you great thanks for intervening into our lives and saving us from the bitterness of our souls and our thoughts, the bitterness of sin, the bitterness of my own personal perspective, the bitterness of pride, the bitterness of hatred, the bitterness of standing as another's judge. <clears throat> From Genesis to Revelation, in your word, 
Whenever I see your judgment, I cringe. If I really let myself sit in the emotion, Lord, I want to weep. But I see and I hear what saves me and what saves all from the eternal bitterness of separation from you. And that's to see and to know Jesus. I want to give you thanks for revealing yourself to me. It gives me great hope and faith, Lord, that anybody who needs to see you this morning, I know that they'll see you if they seek you. So I pray for each one, Lord, that they hear that constant call from you to come. To see you, to trust you, to hear you, to know you, to follow you, to serve you, to sacrifice for you. To know that they are created, to know that they are loved sacrificially to know that they don't need to hunger or thirst, to know that they don't need to mourn, to know that they don't have to be shackled, but to know true freedom, and not just in the future, but today. I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who you use to reveal yourself to me, who you use to sharpen me, who you use to stop me in my tracks, so that I'll turn in and listen to your voice. We choose to worship you today, to glorify you, to know you, to hope in you, to be confident in you. We choose, Lord, to love our brothers and sisters that you have placed into your body in all of their diversity, in all of their personalities, in all of their perspectives, in all of their hurts and all of their pains, Lord, we choose not to judge, but we choose to love and to care and to honor and to cherish. Because you love them, Lord, we love them. We love one another because you first loved us. It is in the mighty, powerful, glorious, strong, kind, gracious, merciful, justifying name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.